This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. So sometimes in this day and age, we often witness really huge moments in the world, whether it's uh, the an Olympic winner giving a speech, uh, an at, a college athlete giving a, an interview to a reporter, um, or even a president firing off a tweet, which is informing global conversations. And more and more these days, the rhetoric, uh, not just uh, political rhetoric, but the rhetoric that we are sharing around the kitchen table, um, the conversations that we're having as a society around culture, around American identity, all of those are being quickly informed by words. And I know that sounds a little naive, a little silly, and maybe a little obvious, but sometimes when we deal with a rapid media cycle and the rapid firing off of a tweet, it's easy to presume that maybe not too many people are pouring too much thought into those words or how those frameworks are actually really being thought through before they're being implemented or enacted. Today, we have an amazing special guest on American Enough, Anish Rahman, who not only had the chance to serve as a presidential speechwriter to Barack Obama in the White House, but also was able to see the dynamics of words and rhetoric shaping America's cultural identity, both as a journalist stationed in Baghdad covering the early years of the Iraq War during the Bush administration, and well after the White House as a media technologist who's worked his hand at a number of technology-focused startups that are aimed at navigating the new media landscape. Anish, welcome to American Enough. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. Thanks for being here. So I, I want to start, I mean, you've worn very, very many hats over the years, and I'd really love to unpack each of them in terms of the perspectives that are going on today with American identity. But let's just start at this top when it comes to two words. As a former speechwriter um, to both the president as well as other cabinet matters, uh, cabinet members, sorry, you know well that words can have a very, very big impact, both in terms of unifying the country, moving stock markets, creating economic confidence, but then also potentially in dividing the country. So what do you see as the rhetoric of this current administration? And is that really shaping the moral authority of the White House or the bully pulpit of the Oval Office? Or no matter who's in that Oval Office, can words just recapture that moral authority at any moment in time, no matter what the prior person may have said about it? Well, I, as you were Leading into that question, I was reminded of the, the debate that happened in 2008 during the primaries about whether words matter. Uh, candidate Obama then was getting some pushback because people felt like he was getting too much credit for being eloquent and that eloquence didn't uh, matter when it came to policy. And the campaign uh, pushed back with a message that words matter, that words had resonant significance and as a speechwriter, obviously, I'm biased towards that. My job was to write words. But as a citizen, having seen that campaign, having seen the administration, I, I'm more convinced than ever that, that words matter and that the words of the president matter. Your podcast is called American Enough. I'm a kid who grew up as a first-generation American, a son of immigrants, who wrestled with that question, am I American enough for a lot of my childhood? And when I look at the eight years uh, of President Obama, what I see uh, through words, uh, as much as actions, but, but through really powerful words, was 
a president who said that others don't decide what is America. Individuals decide. We as a, as a community decide. Ultimately, as a country, we, we decide. And he issued a really full-throated embrace of America as an inclusive, diverse society. And I think to some degree, uh, the election of Trump was a reaction to that, was a reaction to how the president had shifted the conversation around who is American. And, and for people for whom that was a zero-sum question, who felt that the more people that were allowed to see themselves as American, the, the, the less rights that meant for those who were previously um, uh, self-identifying fully as Americans, that, that caused a lot of the tension. Um, but so that, to me, is an example, the, the election of President Trump of why words matter. Um, and I think we've seen President Trump uh, uh, more often than not choose the easier path when it comes to statements as a president, which is to, to divide and not to um, and not to unify. It's hard to unify a country as big and messy and diverse as ours. Um, it takes work, it takes a sustained effort, and it takes authentic belief. And I think President Obama had that and, and was able to really give a sense of, of, of being American that, that, that took someone from Iowa and connected them with someone in California. And I think with President Trump, we see someone who is using words to rally his base, and that is an understandable impulse, um, but it is one that, that for the presidency, the presidency is a person, a president, but it's also an institution, the presidency. It's, it's a singular institution in the country, in the world, and there's a responsibility there to unify that, that more often than not, we've been lucky to have presidents that have erred on that side um, rather than on the side of playing to their political base. Um, and in pure politics, it isn't generally seen as a, as a smart strategy because you're not expanding your base to mobilize the country behind big legislation that you want to get passed. So I think President Trump has has gone down the easier path, which is to play to his base, to play to divisions. Um, I, there are moments where you can see when he's reading off the prompter uh, lines that are speaking to us as a nation and trying to be inclusive. But the tweets undercut that, the interviews undercut that. There's a there's a disconnect between those moments and what people think he really believes. Actually, that, that's a really, really good insight because there have been moments where this president has called for unity. You know, earlier um, this, today, one of the, the tragic victims of a shooting at the congressional uh, baseball practice, a Republican, I think, whip or Republican leader in the House, Steve Scalise, walked back into the chamber, um, much to the applause of both sides of the chamber today. Um, Right after he was shot, President Trump actually said that Americans are at its finest. America remains at its finest when we come together. And yet he'll toggle, right? As you pointed out, there'll be moments like that. And then there'll be other moments where he'll be pretty brash. But some people, maybe it's his base, would say that that what you call division, I call speaking truth to power or being blunt or just being candid. Is, is there value in in this sort of toggling of what he's doing by being two-faced with a message of unity in one moment and divisive the next? And I guess I asked that by specifically framing, is it okay for the Oval Office to be treated in this way? And is it bad that maybe those that disagree with him are only disagreeing with him because maybe they just haven't seen it played this way before? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. It's an important question. I think it's up to each of us as citizens to decide, um, you know, what the Oval Office means, what the presidency means. Um, it's not dictated by law. It's up to us as citizens to decide. 
And, and I think that's right. I mean, I think, to me, President Trump represents a sentiment that is existent in America to a large enough degree that he was elected president that has to be engaged with. Um, I think where he takes it to a place where a holder of that office should not take the national discourse, that, to me, is where he goes too far, um, where he really plays into a lot of the, the the fault lines that we have as a country, especially racial fault lines. It's hard to see anything productive um, uh, coming out of that. There is an authenticity to him that his supporters like. There is an authenticity that we all uh, hope to see in politicians because the backdrop for his election included a, a sense broadly across the country that our politics are broken. Um, we certainly experienced that in the Obama administration. The 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 depths of opposition uh, to President Obama were striking, were demoralizing. Uh, you know, having come in from an election in 2008 that felt like the most unifying event I'd ever experienced as an American into a first term where we achieved a lot of major policy wins, um, and then into the second term where then we sort of came up against a wall, an impenetrable wall in the House where we couldn't get a bill to the floor, even immigration reform, common sense, broad bipartisan coalition, probably the broadest coalition behind an issue that America's seen was there at the time behind immigration reform, and we couldn't get a vote. There, there are many reasons to be down on the state of our, our politics. Um, and so authenticity is one thing that people look for, but I mean, authenticity uh, can take many forms. And, and if you are being your authentic self by playing a racial divisions in this country, is that a good thing? To me, no, that isn't. Yeah, and I think that specifically when you start to um, play out or play to those fault lines, you start creating not a sense of uh, civic nationalism in which maybe we're divided by what we think is the right outcome or approach for the country, but rather a tribal nationalism where there are these you know distinct enclaves that get formed, uh, and that I, I concur can be incredibly incredibly scary. And you know, as a former domestic policy speechwriter, um, I, I know I, I'd like to, to talk to you a little bit about um, identity and how that's being formed by each of these pieces of rhetoric. But before we get there, I want to actually zoom out and kind of shifting away from the domestic policy considerations to just how leaders around the world or citizens around the world may see some of these overtures, either from the president via Twitter or directly in his speeches. Um, you've covered speeches when they speak to foreign policy. You've informed the very values through speeches, um, even if they're domestic in scope, that get exported when a leader takes those values on the road abroad. Specifically, he's had some very, very harsh words and intense words when he's speaking to some of our allies in other countries, including France, including Germany, as well as some of our adversaries, including North Korea. When you're crafting these sentiments and remarks, either as a journalist or as an observer or as a citizen of the world, are those words, should they be taken seriously? Here in the United States, we tend to scoff oftentimes when, when Trump tweets random acts of absurdity. But around the world, as an American ally, should you take that frankly and recalibrate your strategy or frankly recalibrate the way that you engage the United States as a partner? Well, there's no right answer. There's no good answer, at least there, because at some level, if you say take it seriously, um, you know we we've got often erratic and and at times contradictory statements coming from the president 
to foreign leaders. Um, often they undercut things that his own Secretary of Defense or Secretary of State has said. So either you want them to take literally the words of the American president, but if so, then there's that baggage, or you don't want them to. You want, as you say, them to scoff it off, but then what does that mean in terms of our leadership position? If the words of the president of the United States uh, who held the dual title for all of our lives as also leader of the free world, if, if those words don't carry weight. It's really a a situation that, that on any given day is a difficult one for me to, to comprehend. Uh, you know, I grew up a Democrat. I grew up a Democrat who believes fully in the two-party system, in the battle of ideas, um, in the need for a battle of ideas to get to the best policy. I grew up as much as a Democrat as an institutionalist, someone who with almost theological reverence, looks at institutions like the presidency, institutions like Congress, institutions like the Supreme Court, and sees them as pillars, essential pillars to what I think is the greatest nation that's ever existed. Um, and that's across party lines. Um, and so if you are a institutionalist, this is a really troubling moment in American history um, because institutions are being challenged um, in, in significant ways. And, and you could add in the media as an institution, some arbiter of truth that existed, that institution's being challenged. And, and how we come back out of this to where our divisions are not about tribal identity, but are about the best way we think we should get to a solution for a problem we agree we have. It's sometimes hard to see where this is going to end and how we're going to come back from it. I think as guardrails, we have demographics and we have the law. And those give me real comfort that we can emerge from this and that this will be a necessary moment that we had to go through because of the swift change that we are seeing um, uh, across this country. Wait, can you unpack a bit more? Sorry to interrupt. Unpack a bit more when you talk about that was very well put. The guardrails of both um, laws, uh, the 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 letter and the spirit of the laws, as well as the guardrails of demographics. What specifically do you mean by the demographic guardrail? Well, I think where we where we get into racial politics, where we get into identity politics, um, the way that the president either by intent or not, conveys that is about a white America and a non-white America. And the demographics of this country are such that we are becoming, by the day, more diverse. We are becoming, by the day, a more pluralistic society. And, and that, that demographic movement is unstoppable. And to me, that demographic movement over time is going to challenge us in real ways. It's going to challenge, as we're seeing right now, deep-seated ideas of what America, despite what the founding principles are, despite how we have over centuries talked about America um, in terms of the possibilities for inclusion and equality, what it's actually becoming is going to challenge a lot of what people thought America was, and, and that's understandable. Uh, but that demographic shift is underway, and it is unstoppable. And I think the more that we become a more diverse country, the more we will learn to embrace that, celebrate that, and the question of American enough will start to shift. And we will really see ourselves as unique to human history, a society where regardless of where you're from, regardless of what socioeconomic uh, 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 part of the spectrum you grew up 
uh, in. You, you have this opportunity, regardless of who you love, what faith you practice, you have a shot at going as far as, as, as your talent and drive will take you. And that, that really hasn't existed to the, in the way that it can in America ever. And so democracy, I think, is a, is a powerful uh, force that is underway. It means as Democrats, there are, there are ways that we could play short-term politics at the expense of our core beliefs and, and that are not worth it, given where the country is headed. And so I think it's important as Democrats that we hold firm to our beliefs about who is American? What is American enough? Uh, and then on the law side, I think, you know, Mueller is a good example of just ultimately we have laws. And, and, and as, as so far, they've held as an as a important marker uh, and guardrail. And, you know, you were the first, the, the country's first South Asian speechwriter for a president of the United States. And you are witnessing right now, and, and when we keep using this yardstick of what counts as American, you know, pretty strong assaults on different minority groups and not just along ethnic lines, right? You've got transgendered service members who are being called out for perhaps not being fit enough to serve. Uh, you've got the condoning of neo-Nazi behavior as being just as volatile as anyone um, standing up for uh, you know, never again entertaining bigoted ideas. And you've even got immigrants that are um, now there are policies being proposed that in order to effectively immigrate here, you have to showcase your ability or potential to assimilate to American culture. All of these things are very rarely defined by the president or the White House when they state them. And yet, as you mentioned, it's the president's role to use their platform as a uniter to sort of define elements of that identity, even though it's it's varied and evolving in real time. So speaking specifically to your point you just made about demographics, things are varied. Uh, there there are, you know, quickly shifting landscapes of of my, minorities that may soon very well be in, the, in 2040, 2050 majority populations in this country. At the same time, for many populations, minority or not, there is still a shift in the identity of what it means to be an American worker. Uh, the fact that you could work hard, as our boss used to say, work hard, do the right thing, and you would grow a little bit. Many argue that what Donald Trump is capturing is some real anger at the fact that that basic compact that always informed American identity, regardless of demographic evolution, is starting to subside. So when you say that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party can make short-term plays to stoke the flames around identity politics, it's increasingly clear that Either, either party, but frankly, any leader needs to also make long-term plays that speak to economic opportunity, minimizing income inequities and other barriers, including technology impacting the landscape. So how do you actually stand up as a leader, whether you're Donald Trump's speechwriter, Stephen Miller, or whether you are the, a future presidential candidate, and, and try and package all of these shifting concepts, new identity demographics, new identity politics, but very, very real economic disparities among all of those groups? I think you have to go right to the economic disparities. I think one of the failings of the Democratic Party um, has been an has has been a I'm trying to think of the right word has been a, an ineffective um, ultimately argument that that we are a party that that is trying to grow the middle class. President Obama spoke about it endlessly. I wrote countless speeches about that, but for some reason um, 
the party has not been able to make that case in a way that is that resonates. Now there are a bunch of different theories as to why, but but it hasn't happened. I think that. that the, the the discussion about identity politics often comes at the expense of an urgent discussion that we need to have as a country about economic mobility, income inequality, uh, where technology is taking us in terms of automation and, and what the skills will be that you need to get a job, the need for higher education um, that a lot of people can't afford or they go and they drop out because a life emergency means they can't stay. Uh, increasingly, we are a country that, it, that, that that is not speaking to the belief that anyone can do anything, that no matter which side of the tracks you grow up on, you have a shot of building a better life for yourself and your family. Increasingly, in pockets of America, the socioeconomic class you're born into is where you stay. And that's the most important issue for us to confront as a country, in my mind. It, it, it's the issue through which everything else um, um, has to be discussed. And I, and, and, as a party, the Democrats to this day still have not done as good a job as they should and need to to speak to that issue, because that's the everything about America moving forward, making it so that we don't have some new segregation that is socioeconomic and not racial, where those who have opportunity marry each other, live amongst each other, raise their kids to live in that world, while those who didn't aren't able to break through. That's as un-American as anything that that we're discussing on the the other side about racial divisions and identity politics. And it's unfortunate because that issue is not getting discussed enough. It's an issue where President Trump at least has given voice to some real anger out there that's justified. But that's where you go back to the the thing that we saw even when we were in there with President Obama. Our, Our system is not functioning right now. It is not dealing with issues like this that are the defining challenges of our time. We are not trying to get more kids into higher education and not just get them there, but graduate them with skills that employers need that are close by so they can get a job. We're not trying to retrain at scale workers that are not equipped to compete in today's workforce. Uh, We're not trying to do the things that are at the basic bargain um, at, at the at, at the foundation of that basic bargain that President Obama used to talk about, that you could work hard and build a better life for yourself and for your kids. Our system just isn't doing that. Right. And, and I guess part of the, if there's an erosion in faith of that basic social compact, um, there's also been an erosion of faith in what you mentioned earlier, the institution of media and how information has shared. And in many ways, you know, I may be drinking the Kool-Aid of bias on this, I will admit, but in many ways, a lot of the the trust that's been chipped away at there has come by way of antagonizing rhetoric from this president. Uh, but certainly the, the back and forth flow of what we keep hearing about new details emerging of the sophistication of, you know, how the Russia scandal and election tampering concepts were covered or not covered, all of that starting to inform whether or not people actually trust media as an institution. As someone who was, you know, not only a, a bureau reporter for CNN, which has taken, you know, many hits under this president, um, but also someone who's helped build out modern technologically forward media landscapes um, at a couple of your companies out in Silicon Valley, I'm curious, 
does this antagonizing rhetoric, what does it really mean for the identity of an American journalist? Are, are we at risk for losing out of many promising graduates from Medill or other amazing you know, Northwestern's program on journalism from folks even wanting to go into this field anymore? Maybe. I, I think there's a there's a duality to the moment where you have this antagonism towards the media embodied by this fake news uh, uh, term. But then you also have this resurgence of investigative quality journalism that really is driving and shaping the national conversation in meaningful ways. And so if you're a if you're a young kid thinking about journalism, there are a lot of reasons to feel more excited about the, the profession now than there were five, 10 years ago, when it wasn't an issue of fake news or real news, but more just relevant news. Um, you know, when I came up at CNN, as a kid, I grew up every night at seven o'clock watching Peter Jennings' World News Tonight. We did it as a family. Right after we watched, we had dinner. We talked about what we saw. I saw as a kid, our dinner conversation become the national conversation, shape national policy. There was a really direct line between a reporter and social impact that I saw. And that's what really inspired me to want to be a reporter. And I, at CNN, had moments of real impact. Um, you know, when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia in 2004, the journalism around that story compelled people to contribute millions to a part of the world that was often ignored. Uh, the year plus I spent in Baghdad during some of the worst days of the Iraq war served as a reminder to the American people that this was happening on the ground. Iraqis were dying. Americans were dying. Um, uh, kept it in the national mindset. Uh, coverage of Iran during the, the height of the nuclear dispute, um, where many people thought Ahmadinejad, uh, who was a controversial president, uh, represented every Iranian. And to be able to go in there and show, you no, know, they're young, Western-minded people, um, that provided some nuance into the global discussion. But at the time that I left CNN to join the Obama campaign, journalism was shifting from a place where people decided, who, who worked at journalistic organizations, what Americans should know, to this just sea of content offering, um, where then a lot of what was being asked of journalists was to tell more of their personal story. Everyone wanted to get more emotional. Um, uh, what was it like to be an American in Iran? What was it like to travel into a war zone? And now we've gone from that into an even more fragmented place where everyone and anyone, uh, you know, is writing a blog post that's appearing on a Facebook feed or on a Google search that then is being is seen as news by by the consumer. So you know, it's a really hard question. There's a great kind of um, liberation of content that that we should applaud, where you don't need to work at CBS or ABC uh, or NBC or CNN to get a story told. Uh, but at the same time, there are now so many people telling so many stories across so many different platforms that as a consumer, it's really tough to know where to go um, to get reporting. But that, you know, that's part of just evolution and especially evolution that is supercharged by technology. And so as long as we stay committed to what our beliefs are, if journalism really is about shining light on the truth and, and we can come together as a people and figure out ways to, to know how to keep that alive, we'll be okay. But that goes back to just the core issue of institutions being degraded and undercut because without those institutions, we start to get unmoored and, and the divisions 
become harder to pull together on consequential challenges, whether it's economic mobility or how do we have an arbiter of truth so that we're making good decisions as a people. That's a fantastic point you mentioned in terms of, you know, this is also a, a renaissance for for media as an institution in not just America or society that not only would a would be aspiring journalist be hyper motivated to go out there and and be almost a public servant connecting citizens to information, but also the fact that technology is playing such a big role means that we have vast opportunities to leverage it in pretty interesting ways. I think so far we've we kind of top of mind of the American zeitgeist is technology equals, you know, fast information being spread via Twitter. Um, or in a more cynical perspective, we're hearing more and more reports about how search engine algorithms or news feeds may be impacting the types of information are out there. But tech, as you know, can be a real force for good when it comes to citizen engagement or just information dissemination. What do you see moving forward, you know, even zooming out beyond just um, the politics of the day as the role of tech being when it comes to informing American identity or at a minimum informing just the access of, of information or sorry, to information by an American? Determinative. There, there isn't an issue you could put on the table where technology isn't going to have a determinative impact um, over the rest of our lives. And and I think people are wary of technology for good reason. Um, at, at best, it's provided them with convenience and diversion, not empowerment. And at worst, it's become something they reflexively fear because it's going to take away their jobs or take away their privacy, steal their data. I think there's a need for technology as a whole to reintroduce itself to the global community as a potential force for good and then commensurate with that. Uh, a need within technology to focus the development of technology on on areas where technology can empower, where it can help us go after structural problems. You know, President Obama was guest editor of Wired last year and talked about this being the, the greatest time to be alive and the greatest place to be alive. If you had to pick one place and one time to be alive throughout human history, you would pick right now in America. And I agree. I think that what technology can allow us to do is to go after challenges in a way that we've never been able to before. And the real question is just whether we can make sure as a society, and that's the tech industry, but also policymakers, but also individuals as consumers, we're shaping the development of technology in a way that it is headed in that direction. But the potential is certainly there. And and having been out here now for three years, there's a movement that is growing of people who see technology as something that that is about empowerment, not simply convenience or diversion, and are thinking about ways technology can go after structural problems. The startup I was most recently at, Raise Me, is all about that. Um, right now, kids don't get scholarship dollars from colleges until they get in. Raise Me is the first ever way for kids to earn those dollars starting in ninth grade for individual achievement and progress. So now you have a platform created by technology where first-generation, low-income students who otherwise have no real transparency into the cost of college, who otherwise have no real support system helping them know what they should do and helping them stay motivated ninth, 10th, 11th grade, well before they're writing their college applications. Now they have access to all of that in a way that wouldn't have been possible before technology. So more things like that need to happen, but they are starting to happen. And I, and I think that there is tremendous possibility 
um, for technology to do good. And and to be fair, it hasn't it hasn't proved that yet to the degree that that it can and should. And and so it's on all of us who are part of this conversation out here to to make that more true. That, that that's a fantastic model, um, both on the raise me side, but even just a commentary of how technology can demystify certain fears um, and really be used to to empower individuals around us. There's also a pretty unique moment. I mean, you were an Obama administration alum that moved into the tech space. Um, President Obama himself was a a president who used the the White House to really embrace the technology community. We've we've seen challenges around you know technology councils or manufacturing councils being able to be retained under the guise of this president, but without picking you know who is the better president at leveraging tech or you know who is more mindful of the technology community. There's one remaining fact that can't be disputed, and that's that over the last few years, government, in large part because of the Obama administration's technology team, had embraced the private sector to tackle problems. You know, there were programs like the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program, uh, recruiting those with technical expertise to do stints. Uh, tours of duty, if you will, in the government to help the government tackle problems. Now you have a pretty strong outbound flow of sorts in which people who've spent a lot of time in public service, spent a lot of time in government, now have an opportunity to experience in this golden age, this most exciting time to be alive technologically, and, and bring their insights from government to a tech community. What do you think then makes the what, what's the obligation, I guess, for a technologist or for a tech company um, to engage on some of these more civically minded uh, causes? Because for every one of the raise me type organizations that exists, there may be another tech company that is not really paying attention to a, a social issue, but maybe as, as a software as a service issue or getting your, you know, food delivered to your to your doorstep issue. Um, are those things just as important to the social fabric of our broader community? And and if so, what are what are the obligations that the tech community has um, to embrace government or that the government has to embrace tech? So a few things. I would say first, um, the private sector has a outsized role to play in the development of technology. I wrote a piece for Fortune um, a year or two ago called Can Silicon Valley Save the American Dream? And it lays out an argument as to why positive, social impact technology is going to have to come out of the private sector. Uh, the reason is twofold. One, it costs a lot to develop technology. Until we're producing engineers at a higher rate and it doesn't cost as much to hire engineers, it's going to cost a lot to develop technology. Second, it takes a lot of risk. Um, you have to accept a lot of risk when you're going to develop technology. There's a lot of failures that occur before you get to success because it's all still so new. So with those two things in mind, technology costs too much for the government. Um, uh, I mean, the government has money it can spend, but but it also is not agile enough to take on that risk and to innovate. And, and the nonprofit sector, where you have a more focused um, approach to impact, it costs too much for them to develop technology. So technology is going to have to come out of the private sector. Uh, if we wait only for the private sector to deliver social impact technology, it's going to take too long. Really, what we need is an everyone together approach, nonprofit, government, private sector, sharing best practices, open source technology that can be used by nonprofits so they don't have to create it, public-private partnerships that can incentivize more raise me's. Um, you know, 
for profit is for profit. It's going to it's going to it's going to go after consumer needs. So I think there's sometimes a hype that exists out in Silicon Valley where everyone is changing the world, whether it's a dating app or whether it's something like Raise Me. And, and no, not everyone's changing the world. I think there needs to be a healthier dose of realism uh, within the technology community that a lot of these things are just straight consumer plays. And, and that's OK. But when we allow ourselves to conflate that with social impact, we're doing a disservice to social impact because we're not creating enough urgency and need for distinctly other types of technology products to, to come along. So I think in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, we need to be more honest with ourselves. And, and in a way that you run a company with just really uh, honest accounting, we as a community that is at the, at the, at the core of where technology is going to go need to be really honest in our accounting of whether we're doing enough um, to build technology that is going to have social impact. But but the movement of technology is irreversible. It's unstoppable. It, it, you can take anything that, that you fear about technology and assign it to a company. And if you got rid of that company, that fear would still exist because another company would come along. And as a community outside of Silicon Valley, just as, as an American kind of um, community, we have to I think better embrace that, but that really falls to the failure of our policymakers to be more agile and and engaged um, with technology. Um, I, I think we tried really hard in the Obama administration, and and I think it stalled a bit. And we don't have time to waste. So the fact that it stalled is is worrisome to me. And and I think you know reverting back to where we started at the top of this conversation, when it comes to words and 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 guidance or advice or trust for institution, it's an interesting time because many many technology companies have used their captive audience, you know, whether it's the consumers they sell to or just the visibility they may have as a, a household name type of CEO to start to kind of lean into you know, what I would call the era of the CEO statesman or stateswoman in which regardless of what your product is and whether it's being applied for consumer goods or social goods, if you have a fair amount of either A, visibility or if you or B, have really core values of the company, CEOs are starting to use that platform to espouse on affairs of state, you know, whether it was the withdrawal of the Paris Climate Accords or whether it was the, the transgender ban that in the military that we talked about earlier or the travel ban on various immigration executive actions from this administration, uh, CEOs are speaking up. When it comes to words and when it comes to customer loyalty, one could say that this could really be divisive to those consumers that don't share those values. Others could say it could turn loyalty because it knows uh, – a consumer knows exactly where your, your compass is at morally as a company. How do you see sort of those offering of, of words, statements, or even kind of policy commentaries from the boardroom? Um, are they meaningful for our national conversation? And when it comes to American identity, are we going to see more and more cause-based advocacy being shaped or more moral authority being shaped by the American CEO as opposed to the Oval Office? Well, I don't think it's, it's zero-sum. I think um... – Yes, there's risk for CEOs to make a statement, uh, but I also think that there is a responsibility for them to do so when this country is is, is confronting such significant challenges and having such important debates. Um, and and I and and they would only do so if they felt like it was also something they needed to do because their consumers were expecting it. Um, and so 
we're in a moment where it, it is necessary for all the reasons um, that you laid out to speak. And I would add to it just that technology CEOs have a special responsibility because they really are at the forefront of leadership in deciding how technology is going to change how we live, how we work, how we coexist. They have an imprint that is greater than policymakers at the moment, um, especially the leaders of the biggest tech companies. And, and I think the public is starting to recognize what's coming from technology, AI, things that are going to remake so much of, of the world around us. And so they're expecting clarity or at least expecting comment um, from these leaders. Uh, and so I think that's something that's here to stay, um, especially for, for leaders of technology companies. Um, you know, whether broadly it's here to stay, I think as long as we're in a moment of, 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 of intense division like now, it's here to stay. But when that eases up, there'll probably be less need and also less desire to hear from CEOs uh, on issues of the day. Well, at the end of the day, I, I think you hit something on the head earlier, which was spot on, which is all of these, this confluence of, of new technologies, as well as a, a sense of responsible journalism, as well as a sense to really rise above any moment of division and culture war stoking and focus on a concept that can embrace new demographics and speak to new laws is really a challenging set of, of moments for this country's identity in pursuit of a more perfect union, but certainly an, an exciting time to want to play ball. Anish Raman, former speechwriter to President Obama, former technologist and vice president at Raise Me and Aussie Media, and current father of two. Thanks for joining American Enough. Thanks for having me. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. <laughs>